1: And enjoy the show. If darkness is what you're after, seek no more your searches through. You haven't found the darkness, traveler. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 10. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and I'm thrilled you could join me tonight. Cyclopean. Adjective. 1. Denoting a type of ancient masonry made with massive irregular blocks, i.e. Cyclopean stone walls. 2. Of or resembling a cyclops, i.e. a Cyclopean eye. Oof. He sure does like that word, doesn't he? I hope you're ready for part two where things get really Cyclopean. Yes, it is a wordy tale, no doubt. And as German once said, you're sure to be in a fine haze about now, but don't think too hard about all this. And you can even use the doll if it pleases you. Don't bother looking that last part up. But stick with the story though, because this one has a banger ending. Yeah, this was fun. We might make it a holiday thing. Merry Lovecraftmas. I'm sure somebody else thought of that first. But I will keep at it. And next week? Dreams in the Witch House. Maybe. You're listening to the Standard Edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012... Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies The nightmares come to life. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness... The darkness has found you. If you haven't listened to part one of The Shadow Out of Time, I refer you to last week's episode. And I do recommend it, because if you don't listen to that one, you'll probably be a little lost. And now, without further ado... From the loathsome corpse cities of the deepest oceanic trenches, where that which is not dead may eternal lie. From the great Howard Phillips Lovecraft, I give you the horrifying conclusion to the shadow out of time. Chapter 5 That is the world of which my dreams brought me dim, scattered echoes every night. I cannot hope to give any true idea of the horror and dread contained in such echoes, for it was upon a wholly intangible quality, the sharp sense of pseudo memory, that such feelings mainly depended. As I have said, my studies gradually gave me a defense against these feelings in the form of rational psychological explanations, and this saving influence was augmented by the subtle touch of familiarity which comes with the passage of time. Yet, in spite of everything, the vague, creeping terror would return momentarily now and then. It did not, however, engulf me as it had before, And after 1922, I lived a very normal life of work and recreation. In the course of years, I began to feel that my experience, together with the kindred cases and related folklore, ought to be definitely surmised and published for the benefit of serious students. Hence, I prepared a series of articles briefly covering the whole ground and illustrated with crude sketches of some of the shapes, scenes, decorative motifs and hieroglyphs remembered from the dreams. These appeared at various times during 1928 and 1929 in the Journal of the American Psychological Society, but did not attract much attention. Meanwhile, I continued to record my dreams with the minutest care, even though the growing stack of reports attained troublesomely vast proportions. On July 10, 1934, there was forwarded to me by the Psychological Society the letter, which opened the culminating and most horrible phase of the whole mad ordeal. It was postmarked Pilbara, Western Australia, and bore the signature of one whom I found, upon inquiry, to be a mining engineer of considerable prominence. Enclosed were some very curious snapshots. I will reproduce the text in its entirety, when no reader can fail to understand how tremendous an effect it and the photographs had upon me. I was, for a time, almost stunned and incredulous. For, although I had often thought that some basis of fact must underline certain phases of the legends which had colored my dreams, I was nonetheless unprepared for anything like a tangible survival from a lost world remote beyond all imagination. Most devastating of all were the photographs. For here, in cold, incontrovertible realism... There stood out against a background of sand, certain worn-down, water-ridged, storm-weathered blocks of stone. The slightly convex tops and slightly concave bottoms told their own story. And when I studied them with a magnifying glass, I could see all too plainly amidst the batterings and pittings. The traces of those vast curvilinear designs and occasional hieroglyphs whose significance had become so hideous to me but here is the letter which speaks for itself 49 Dampier Street Pilbara West Australia May 18th 1934 professor N.W. Peasley care of the American Psychological Society 30 East 41st Street New York City USA my dear sir A recent conversation with Dr. E. M. Boyle of Perth, and some papers with your articles which he has just sent me, make it advisable for me to tell you about certain things I have seen in the great sandy desert east of our goldfield here. It would seem, in view of the peculiar legends about old cities with huge stonework and strange designs and hieroglyphs which you describe, that I have come upon something very important the blackfellows have occasionally been full of talk about great stones with marks on them, and seem to have a terrible fear of such things. They connect them in some way with their common racial legends about Budai, the gigantic old man who lies asleep for ages underground with his head on his arm, and who will someday awake and eat up the world. There are some very old and half-forgotten tales of enormous underground huts of great stones, where passages lead down and down and where horrible things have happened. The Blackfellows claim that once some warriors, fleeing in battle, went down into one and never came back, but that frightful winds begin to blow from the place soon after they went down. However, there usually isn't much in what these natives say. But what I have to tell is more than this. Two years ago, When I was prospecting about 500 miles east in the desert, I came on a lot of queer pieces of dressed stone, perhaps 3 by 2 by 2 feet in size, and weathered and pitted to the very limit. At first, I couldn't find any of the marks the blackfellows told about, but when I looked close enough, I could make out some deeply carved lines in spite of the weathering. There were peculiar curves, just like what the blackfellows are trying to describe, I imagine there must have been 30 or 40 blocks, some nearly buried in the sand, and all within a circle perhaps a quarter of a mile in diameter. When I saw some, I looked around closely for more and made a careful reckoning of the place with my instruments. I also took pictures of 10 or 12 of the most typical blocks and will enclose the prints for you to see. I turned my information and pictures over to the government at Perth, but they have done nothing about them. Then, I met Dr. Boyle, who had read your articles in the Journal of the American Psychological Society, and, in time, happened to mention the stones. He was enormously interested, and became quite excited when I showed him my snapshots, saying that the stones and the markings were just like those of the masonry you had dreamed about and seen described in legends. He meant to write you, but was delayed. Meanwhile... He sent me most of the magazines with your articles, and I saw at once, from your drawings and descriptions, that my stones are certainly the kind you mean. You can appreciate this from the enclosed prints. Later on, you will hear directly from Dr. Boyle. Now, I can understand how important all this will be to you. Without question, we are faced with the remains of an unknown civilization older than any dreamed of before and forming a basis for your legends. As a mining engineer, I have some knowledge of geology, and can tell you that these blocks are so ancient. They frighten me. They are mostly sandstone and granite, though one is almost certainly made of a queer sort of cement or concrete. They bear evidence of water action, as if this part of the world had been submerged and come up again after long ages all since those blocks were made and used. It is a matter of hundreds of thousands of years, or heaven knows how much more. I don't like to think about it. In view of your previous diligent work in tracking down the legends and everything connected with them, I cannot doubt but that you will want to lead an expedition to the desert and make some archaeological excavations. Both Dr. Boyle and I are prepared to cooperate in such works if you... ...or organizations known to you... ...can furnish the funds. I can get together a dozen miners... ...for the heavy digging. The fellows would be of no use... ...for I found that they have an almost... ...maniacal fear of this particular spot. Boyle and I are saying nothing to others... ...for you very obviously ought to have... ...precedence in any discoveries or credit. The place can be reached from Pilbara... ...in about four days by motor tractor... ...which we'd need for your apparatus... It is somewhat west and south of Warburton's Path of 1873... ...and 100 miles southeast of Joanna Spring. We could float things up the De Grey River instead of starting from Pilbara... ...but all that can be talked over later. Roughly, the stones lie at a point about 22 degrees 3 by 14 south latitude... ...125 0 by 39 east longitude. The climate is tropical and the desert conditions are trying. I shall welcome further correspondence upon this subject and am keenly eager to assist in any plan you may devise. After studying your articles, I am deeply impressed with the profound significance of the whole matter. Dr. Boyle will write later. When rapid communication is needed, a cable to Perth can be relayed by wireless. Hoping profoundly for an early message, believe me, most faithfully yours. Robert B. F. McKenzie Of the immediate aftermath of this letter, much can be learned from the press. My good fortune in securing the backing of Miskatonic University was great, and both Mr. McKenzie and Dr. Boyle proved invaluable in arranging matters at the Australian end. We were not too specific with the public about our objects, since the whole matter would have lent itself unpleasantly to sensational and jocose treatment by the cheaper newspapers. As a result printed reports were sparing but enough appeared to tell of our quest for reported Australian ruins and to chronicle our various preparatory steps Professor William Dyer of the college's geology department leader of the Miskatonic Antarctic Expedition of 1930-31 Ferdinand C. Ashley of the Department of Ancient History and Tyler M. Freeborn of the Department of Anthropology together with my son Wingate accompanied me. My correspondent, Mackenzie, came to Arkham early in 1935 and assisted in our final preparations. He proved to be a tremendously competent and affable man of about 50, admirably well-read and deeply familiar with all the conditions of Australian travel. He had tractors waiting at Pilbara, and we chartered a tramp steamer sufficiently small to get up the river to that point. We were prepared to excavate in the most careful and scientific fashion— sifting every particle of sand and disturbing nothing which might seem to be in or near its original situation. Sailing from Boston aboard the Wheezy Lexington on March 28, 1935, we had a leisurely trip across the Atlantic and Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal, down the Red Sea and across the Indian Ocean to our goal. I need not tell how the sight of the low, sandy West Australian coast depressed me, how I detested the crude mining town and dreary gold fields where the tractors were given their last loads. Dr. Boyle, who met us, proved to be elderly, pleasant, and intelligent, and his knowledge of psychology led him into many long discussions with my son and me. Discomfort and expectancy were oddly mingled in most of us when at length our party of eighteen rattled forth over the arid leagues of sand and rock. On Friday, May 31st, we forded a branch of the De Grey and entered the realm of utter desolation. A certain positive terror grew on me as we advanced to this actual site of the Elder World behind the legends. A terror, of course, abetted by the fact that my disturbing dreams and pseudo memories still beset me with unabated force. It was on Monday, June 3rd, that we saw the first of the half buried blocks. I cannot describe the emotions with which I actually touched in objective reality. A fragment of Cyclopean masonry in every respect like the blocks in the walls of my dream buildings. There was a distinct trace of carving, and my hands trembled as I recognized part of the curvilinear decorative scheme made hellish to me through years of tormenting nightmare and baffling research. A month of digging brought a total of some 1,250 blocks in varying stages of wear and disintegration. Most of these were carved megaliths with curved tops and bottoms. A minority were smaller, flatter, plain-surfaced, and square or octagonally cut, like those of the floors and pavements in my dreams, while a few were singularly massive, and curved or slanted in such a manner as to suggest use in vaulting or groining or as parts of arches or round window casings. The deeper and farther north and east we dug, the more blocks we found, though we still failed to discover any trace of arrangement among them. Professor Dyer was appalled at the measureless age of the fragments and Freeborn found traces of symbols which fitted darkly into certain Papuan and Polynesian legends of infinite antiquity. The condition and scattering of the blocks told mutely of vertiginous cycles of time and geologic upheavals of cosmic savagery. We had an aeroplane with us, and my son Wingate could often go up to different heights and scan the sand and rock waste for signs of dim, large-scale outlines— either differences of level or trails of scattered blocks. His results were virtually negative, for whenever he would one day think he had glimpsed some significant trend, he would on his next trip find the impression replaced by another equally insubstantial, a result of shifting wind-blown sand. One or two of these ephemeral suggestions, though, affected me queerly and disagreeably. They seemed, after a fashion... dovetail horribly with something I had dreamed or read but which I could no longer remember there was a terrible familiarity about them which somehow made me look furtively and apprehensively over the abominable sterile terrain toward the north and northeast around the first week in July I developed an unaccountable set of mixed emotions about the general northeasterly region there was horror and there was curiosity but more than that there was a persistent and perplexing illusion of memory. I tried all sorts of psychological expedients to get these notions out of my head, but met with no success. Sleeplessness also gained upon me, but I almost welcomed this because of the resultant shortening of my dream periods. I acquired the habit of taking long, lone walks in the desert late at night, usually to the north or northeast whither the sum of my strange new impulses seemed subtly to pull me. Sometimes, on these walks, I would stumble over nearly buried fragments of ancient masonry. Though there were fewer visible blocks here than where we had started, I felt sure that there must be a vast abundance beneath the surface. The ground was less level than at our camp, and the prevailing high winds now and then piled the sand into fantastic temporary hillocks, exposing low traces of the elder stone while it covered other traces. I was queerly anxious to have the excavations extend to this territory, yet at the same time dreaded what might be revealed. Obviously, I was getting into a rather bad state, all the worse because I could not account for it. An indication of my poor nervous health can be gained from my response to an odd discovery which I made on one of my nocturnal rambles. It was on the evening of July 11th, when the moon flooded the mysterious hillocks with a curious pallor. Wandering somewhat beyond my usual limits, I came upon a great stone which seemed to differ markedly from any we had yet encountered. It was almost wholly covered, but I stooped and cleared away the sand with my hands, later studying the object carefully and supplementing the moonlight with my electric torch. Unlike the other very large rocks, this one was perfectly square-cut, with no convex or concave surface. It seemed, too, to be of a dark basaltic substance, wholly dissimilar to the granite and sandstone and occasional concrete of the now-familiar fragments. Suddenly, I rose, turned, and ran for the camp at top speed. It was a wholly unconscious and irrational flight, and only when I was close to my tent did I fully realize why I had run. Then it came to me, The queer, dark stone was something which I had dreamed and read about and which was linked with the uttermost horrors of the Aeon Old Legendary. It was one of the blocks of that basaltic elder masonry which the fabled great race held in such fear. The tall, windowless ruins left by those brooding, half-material, alien things that festered in Earth's nether abysses and against whose wind-like, Invisible forces the trapdoors were sealed and the sleepless sentinels posted. I remained awake all night, but by dawn realized how silly I had been to let the shadow of a myth upset me. Instead of being frightened, I should have had a discoverer's enthusiasm. The next forenoon I told the others about my find, and Dyer, Freeborn, Boyle, my son, and I set out to view the anomalous block. Failure, however, confronted us. I had formed no clear idea of the stone's location, and a late wind had wholly altered the hillocks of shifting sand. This episode of Horror Hill is proudly brought to you by Best Fiends. When you finish binging the latest riveting podcast, and I do mean riveting... I mean, there's some really choice entertainment out there. There's the Chilling Tales podcast. There's the Horror Hill podcast. Eh? There's Otis Gyrie's Scary Stories Told in the Dark. And I'm sure there are other ones, but I can't really think of them. Regardless, when you're done being riveted, how do you handle that most elemental of all human questions? What next? Well, you could always re-listen to those podcasts or you could research those podcasts or you could blog or post about those podcasts. But after that, what then? What do you do to unwind after experiencing the holy trinity of audio entertainment easily the greatest three podcasts ever recorded? Well, I got two words for you. Best Fiends, that peculiarly perfect puzzle game that I just can't get enough of. I clear levels to de-stress, I use that adrenaline rush to focus to become better, faster, stronger, to unwind between recording sessions with those increasingly challenging puzzles and endearing characters until I am a well-oiled machine of focus and relaxation. What makes Best Fiends so good? Because it's fun, bro. I've cleared almost a hundred levels in that game. Between recording sessions, goofing off at work, working out, what have you. You can play this game anywhere. And it's always a good time. But don't just take it from me. With over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Seriously, once you download Best Fiends, boredom won't stand a chance. Now... I'm gonna do a little one-man show to illustrate that point. Boredom. It's time. What? Already? No, please. Please, I- I'll go. Look, I- I- I'll walk out that door. You'll never see me again. You'll never hear from me. It'll be as if I were dead. Just p- please. P- please. No. It's too late for all that. You cooperate, I'll give you the chance to go with dignity. You close your eyes if you need to. Don't worry, it'll be an open casket. Your kids will be able to say goodbye and remember you how you were. But it ends now. Who are you to take my life? What gives you the right? Best Fiends. Well, I think that illustrated the point nicely. Yeah. That's how fun this game is. So definitely check it out. It's free to download. New levels are added all the time with new characters and unique abilities to unlock. In fact, you might find yourself wondering how you ever found the time for a dull moment before. So hop to it then. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Thank you for your support of this program and the sponsors that make it possible.
0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
1: Chapter 6 I come now to the crucial and most difficult part of my narrative. All the more difficult because I cannot be quite certain of its reality. At times, I feel uncomfortably sure that I was not dreaming or deluded and it is this feeling in view of the stupendous implications which the objective truth of my experience would raise, which impels me to make this record. My son, a trained psychologist with the fullest and most sympathetic knowledge of my whole case, shall be the primary judge of what I have to tell. First, let me outline the externals of the matter as those at the camp know them. On the night of July 17th through 18th, after a windy day, I retired early but could not sleep. Rising shortly before eleven and afflicted as usual with a strange feeling regarding the northeastward terrain, I set out on one of my typical nocturnal walks, seeing and greeting only one person, an Australian miner named Tupper, as I left our precincts. The moon, slightly past full, shone from a clear sky and drenched the ancient sands with a white, leprous radiance which seemed to me somehow infinitely evil. There was no longer any wind, nor did any return for nearly five hours, as amply attested by Tupper and others who saw me walking rapidly across the pallid, secret-guarding hillocks toward the northeast. About 3.30 a.m., a violent wind blew up, waking everyone in camp and felling three of the tents. The sky was unclouded, And the desert still blazed with the leprous moonlight. As the party saw to the tents, my absence was noted, but in view of my previous walks, this circumstance gave no one alarm. And yet, as many as three men, all Australians, seemed to feel something sinister in the air. Mackenzie explained to Professor Freeborn that this was a fear picked up from Blackfellow folklore the natives having woven a curious fabric of malignant myth about the high winds which at long intervals sweep across the sands under a clear sky. Such winds, it is whispered, blow out of the great stone huts under the ground where terrible things have happened and are never felt except near places where the big, marked stones are scattered. Close to four, the gale subsided as suddenly as it had begun, leaving the sandhills in new and unfamiliar shapes. It was just past five, with the bloated, fungoid moon sinking in the west, when I staggered into camp. Hatless, tattered, features scratched and ensanguined, and without my electric torch. Most of the men had returned to bed, but Professor Dyer was smoking a pipe in front of his tent. Seeing my winded and almost frenzied state, he called Dr. Boyle... ...and the two of them got me on my cot and made me comfortable. My son, roused by the stir, soon joined them... ...and they all tried to force me to lie still and attempt sleep. But there was no sleep for me. The psychological state was very extraordinary... ...different from anything I had previously suffered. After a time, I insisted upon talking... Nervously and elaborately explaining my condition, I told them I had become fatigued and had laying down in the sand for a nap. There had, I said, been dreams even more frightful than usual, and when I was awakened by the sudden high wind my overwrought nerves had snapped. I had fled in panic, frequently falling over half buried stones and thus gaining my tattered and bedraggled aspect. I must have slept long, hence the hours of my absence. Of anything strange either seen or experienced, I hinted absolutely nothing, exercising the greatest self-control in that respect. But I spoke of a change of mind regarding the whole work of the expedition, and urged a halt in all digging toward the northeast. My reasoning was patently weak, for I mentioned a dearth of blocks, a wish not to offend the superstitious miners, a possible shortage of funds from the college, and other things either true or irrelevant. Naturally, no one paid the least attention to my new wishes, not even my son, whose concern for my health was obvious. The next day I was up and around the camp, but took no part in the excavations. Seeing that I could not stop the work, I decided to return home as soon as possible for the sake of my nerves, and made my son promise to fly me in the plane to Perth a thousand miles to the southwest, as soon as he had surveyed the region I wished let alone. If I reflected the thing I had seen was still visible, I might decide to attempt a specific warning even at the cost of ridicule. It was just conceivable that the miners who knew the local folklore might back me up. Humoring me, my son made the survey that very afternoon, flying over all the terrain my walk could possibly have covered. Yet nothing of what I had found remained in sight. It was the case of the anomalous basalt block all over again. The shifting sand had wiped out every trace. For an instant I half regretted having lost a certain awesome object in my stark fright. But now I know that the loss was merciful. I can still believe my whole experience an illusion. Especially if, as I devoutly hope, that hellish abyss is never found. Wingate took me to Perth on July 20th, no declining to abandon the expedition and return home. He stayed with me until the 25th, when the steamer for Liverpool sailed. Now, in the cabin of the Empress, I am pondering long and frantically upon the entire matter, and have decided that my son at least must be informed. It shall rest with him whether to diffuse the matter more widely. In order to meet any eventuality, I prepared this summary of my background, as already known in a scattered way to others, and will now tell as briefly as possible what seemed to happen during my absence from the camp that hideous night. Nerves on edge and whipped into a kind of perverse eagerness by that inexplicable dread-mingled mnemonic urge toward the northeast, I plodded on beneath the evil, burning moon... Here and there I saw half-shrouded by sand those primal cyclopean blocks left from nameless and forgotten aeons. The incalculable age and rooting horror of this monstrous waste began to oppress me as never before, and I could not keep from thinking of my maddening dreams, of the frightful legends which lay behind them and of the present fears of natives and miners concerning the desert and its carven stones. And yet... I plodded on, as if to some eldritch rendezvous, more and more assailed by bewildering fancies, compulsions, and pseudo-memories. I thought of some of the possible contours of the lines of stones as seen by my son from the air and wondered why they seemed at once so ominous and so familiar. Something was fumbling and rattling at the latch of my recollection while another unknown force sought to keep the portal barred. The night was windless, and the pallid sand curved upward and downward like frozen waves of the sea. I had no goal, but somehow plowed along as if with fate-bound assurance. My dreams welled up into the waking world so that each sand-embedded megalith seemed part of endless rooms and corridors of pre-human masonry carved and hieroglyphed with symbols that I knew too well from years of custom as a captive mind of the great race. At moments I fancied I saw those omniscient, conical horrors moving about at their accustomed tasks, and I feared to look down, lest I find myself one with them in aspect. Yet, all the while, I saw the sand-covered blocks as well as the rooms and corridors, The evil, burning moon, as well as the lamps of luminous crystal, the endless desert, as well as the waving ferns beyond the windows. I was awake and dreaming at the same time. I do not know how long or how far, or indeed in just what direction I had walked when I first spied the heap of blocks bared by the day's wind. It was the largest group in one place that I had seen so far and so sharply did it impress me that the visions of fabulous aeons faded suddenly away. Again, there were only the desert and the evil moon and the shards of an unguessed past. I drew close and paused and cast the added light of my electric torch over the tumbled pile. A hillock had blown away, leaving a low, irregularly round mass of megaliths and smaller fragments some forty feet across, and from two to eight feet high. From the very outset I realized that there was some utterly unprecedented quality about those stones. Not only was the mere number of them quite without parallel, but something in the sand-worn traces of design arrested me as I scanned them under the mingled beams of the moon and my torch. Not that anyone differed essentially from the earlier specimens we had found. It was something subtler than that. The impression did not come when I looked at one block alone, but only when I ran my eye over several almost simultaneously. Then, at last, the truth dawned upon me. The curvilinear patterns on many of those blocks were closely related, parts of one vast decorative conception For the first time in this aeon-shaken waste, I had come upon a mass of masonry in its old position. Tumbled and fragmentary, it is true, but nonetheless existing in a very definite sense. Mounting at a low place, I clambered laboriously over the heap, here and there clearing away the sand with my fingers and constantly striving to interpret varieties of size, shape, and style, and relationships of design. After a while, I could vaguely guess at the nature of the bygone structure and at the designs which had once stretched over the vast surfaces of the primal masonry. The perfect identity of the whole with some of my dream glimpses appalled and unnerved me. This was once a cyclopean corridor, 30 feet tall, paved with octagonal blocks and solidly vaulted overhead. There would have been rooms opening up off on the right, and at the farther end one of those strange inclined planes would have wound down to still lower depths. I started violently as these conceptions occurred to me, for there was more in them than the blocks themselves had supplied. How did I know that this level should have been far underground? How did I know that the plane leading upward should have been behind me? How did I know that the long subterranean passage of the square pillars ought to lie on the left, one level above me? How did I know that the room of machines and the rightward leading tunnel to the central archives ought to lie two levels below? How did I know that there would be one of those horrible, metal-banded doors at the very bottom, four levels down? Bewildered by this intrusion from the dream world, I found myself shaking and bathed in cold perspiration. Then, as a last intolerable touch... I felt that faint, insidious stream of cool air trickling upward from a depressed place near the center of the huge heap. Instantly, as once before, my visions faded, and I saw again only the evil moonlight, the brooding desert, and the spreading tumulus of Paleogean masonry. Something real and tangible... Yet fraught with infinite suggestions of knighted mystery now confronted me, for that stream of air could argue but one thing, a hidden gulf of great size beneath the disordered blocks on the surface. My first thought was of the sinister blackfellow legends of vast underground huts among the megaliths where horrors happen and great winds are born. Then, thoughts of my own dreams came back, and I felt dim pseudo-memories tugging at my mind. What manner of place lay below me? What primal, inconceivable source of age-old myth-cycles and haunting nightmares might I be on the brink of uncovering? It was only for a moment that I hesitated, for more than curiosity and scientific zeal was driving me on and working against my growing fear. I seemed to move almost automatically, as if in the clutch of some compelling fate. Pocketing my torch and struggling with a strength that I had not thought I possessed, I wrenched aside first one titan fragment of stone, and then another, till there welled up a strong draught whose dampness contrasted oddly with the desert's dry air. A black rift began to yawn, and at length... When I had pushed away every fragment small enough to budge, the leprous moonlight blazed on an aperture of ample width to admit me. I drew out my torch and cast a brilliant beam into the opening. Below me was a chaos of tumbled masonry, sloping roughly down toward the north at an angle of about 45 degrees, and evidently the result of some bygone collapse from above. Between its surface and the ground level was a gulf of impenetrable blackness, at whose upper edge were signs of gigantic, stressed-heaved vaulting. At this point, it appeared the desert sands lay directly upon a floor of some titan structure of Earth's youth. How preserved through aeons of geologic convulsion I could not then, and cannot now even attempt to guess... In retrospect, the barest idea of a sudden, lone descent into such a doubtful abyss, and at a time when one's whereabouts were unknown to any living soul, seems like the utter apex of insanity. Perhaps it was. Yet that night, I embarked without hesitancy upon such a descent. Again, there was manifest that lure and driving of fatality which had all along seemed to direct my course. With torch flashing intermittently to save the battery, I commenced a mad scramble down the sinister Cyclopean incline below the opening, sometimes facing forward as I found good hand and footholds, and at other times turning to face the heap of megaliths as I clung and fumbled more precariously. In two directions beside me, distant walls of carven, crumbling masonry loomed dimly under the direct beams of my torch. Ahead, however, was only unbroken darkness. I kept no track of time during my downward scramble. So seething with baffling hints and images was my mind that all objective matter seemed withdrawn into incalculable distances. Physical sensation was dead. And even fear remained as a wraith-like, inactive gargoyle, leering impotently at me. Eventually, I reached a level floor strewn with fallen blocks, shapeless fragments of stone and sand and detritus of every kind. On either side, perhaps thirty feet apart, rose massive walls culminating in huge groinings. That they were carved, I could just discern, but the nature of the carvings was beyond my perception. What held me the most was the vaulting overhead. The beam from my torch could not reach the roof, but the lower parts of the monstrous arches stood out distinctly. And so perfect was their identity with what I had seen in countless dreams of the Elder World, that I trembled actively for the first time. Behind and high above, a faint luminous blur told of the distant moonlit world outside... Some vague shred of caution warned me that I should not let it out of my sight, lest I have no guide for my return. I now advanced toward the wall at my left, where the traces of carvings were plainest. The littered floor was nearly as hard to traverse as the downward heap had been, but I managed to pick my difficult way. At one place I heaved aside some blocks and locked away the detritus to see what the pavement was like, and shuddered at the utter fateful familiarity of the great octagonal stones whose buckled surface still held roughly together reaching a convenient distance from the wall i cast the searchlight slowly and carefully over its worn remnants of carving some bygone influx of water seemed to have acted on the sandstone surface while there were curious incrustations which i could not explain in places the masonry was very loose and distorted and I wondered how many aeons more this primal, hidden edifice could keep its remaining traces of form amidst Earth's heavings. But it was the carvings themselves that excited me most. Despite their time-crumbled state, they were relatively easy to trace at close range, and the complete, intimate familiarity of every detail almost stunned my imagination. That the major attributes of this hoary masonry should be familiar was not beyond normal credibility. Powerfully impressing the weavers of certain myths, they had become embodied in a stream of cryptic lore, which, somehow, coming to my notice during the amnesiac period, had evoked vivid images in my subconscious mind. But how could I explain the exact and minute fashion in which each line and spiral of these strange designs tallied with what I had dreamed for more than a score of years? What obscure, forgotten iconography could have reproduced each subtle shading and nuance which so persistently, exactly and unvaryingly, besieged my sleeping vision night after night? For this was no chance a remote resemblance, definitely an absolutely The millennially ancient, aeon-hidden corridor in which I stood was the original of something I knew in sleep as intimately as I knew my own house in Crane Street, Arkham. True, my dream showed the place in its undecayed prime, but the identity was no less real on that account. I was wholly and horribly oriented. The particular structure I was in was known to me. Known, too, was its place in that terrible elder city of dreams, that I could visit unerringly any point in that structure, or in that city which had escaped the changes and devastations of uncounted ages, I realized with hideous and instinctive certainty, what in heaven's name could all this mean? How had I come to know what I knew? And what awful reality could lie behind those antique tales of beings who had dwelt in this labyrinth of primordial stone? Words can convey only fractionally the welter of dread and bewilderment which ate in my spirit. I knew this place. I knew what lay before me. And what had lain overhead before the myriad towering stories had fallen to dust and debris in the desert. No need now. I thought with a shudder, to keep that faint blur of moonlight in view. I was torn betwixt a longing to flee and a feverish mixture of burning curiosity and driving fatality. What had happened to this monstrous megalopolis of old in the millions of years since the time of my dreams? Of the subterranean mazes which had underlain the city and linked all the Titan Towers... How much had still survived the writhings of Earth's crust? Had I come upon a whole buried world of unholy archaism? Could I still find the house of the writing master and the tower of Sikha, The captive mind from the star-headed vegetable carnivores of Antarctica had chiseled certain pictures on the blank spaces of the walls? Would the passage at the second level down to the hall of the alien minds be still unchoked and traversable? In the hall of the captive mind of an incredible entity, a half-plastic denizen of the hollow interior of an unknown transplutonian planet, 18 million years in the future, had kept a certain thing which it had modeled from clay. I shut my eyes and put my hand to my head in a vain, pitiful effort to drive these insane dream fragments from my consciousness. Then, for the first time, I felt acutely the coolness, motion, and dampness of the surrounding air. Shuddering, I realized that a vast chain of aeon-dead black gulfs must indeed be yawning somewhere beyond and below me. I thought of the frightful chambers and corridors and inclines as I recalled them from my dreams. Would the way to the central archive still be open? Again, that driving fatality tugged insistently at my brain as I recalled the awesome records that once lay cased in those rectangular vaults of rustless metal. There, said the dreams and legends, had reposed the whole history, past and future, of the cosmic space-time continuum. Written by captive minds from every orb and every age in the solar system. Madness, of course. But had I not now stumbled into a knighted world as mad as I? I thought of the locked metal shells and of the curious knob twistings needed to open each one. My own came vividly into my consciousness. How often had I gone through that intricate routine of varied turns and pressures in the terrestrial vertebrate section on the lowest level? Every detail was fresh. Familiar. If there were such a vault as I had dreamed of, I can open it in a moment. It was then that madness took me utterly. An instant later, I was leaping and stumbling over the rocky debris toward the well-remembered incline to the depths below. Chapter 7 From that point forward, my impressions are scarcely to be relied on. Indeed, I still possess a final, desperate hope that they all form parts of some demonic dream or illusion born of delirium. A fever raged in my brain, and everything came to me through a kind of haze, sometimes only intermittently. The rays of my torch shot feebly into the engulfing blackness, Bringing phantasmal flashes of hideously familiar walls and carvings, all blighted with the decay of ages. In one place, a tremendous mass of vaulting had fallen, so that I had to clamber over a mighty mound of stones reaching almost to the ragged, grotesquely stalactited roof. It was all the ultimate apex of nightmare, made worse by the blasphemous tug of pseudo memory. One thing only was unfamiliar, and that was my own size in relation to the monstrous masonry. I felt oppressed by a sense of unwanted smallness, as at the sight of these towering walls from a mere human body was something wholly new and abnormal. Again and again I looked nervously down at myself, vaguely disturbed by the human form I possessed. Onward to the blackness of the abyss, I leapt... Plunged and staggered, often falling and bruising myself, and once nearly shattering my torch. Every stone and corner of that demonic gulf was known to me, and at many points I stopped to cast beams of light through choked and crumbling yet familiar archways. Some rooms had totally collapsed, others were bare or debris filled. In a few, I saw masses of metal some fairly intact, some broken, and some crushed or battered, which I recognized as the colossal pedestals or tables of my dreams. What they could in truth have been, I dared not guess. I found the downward incline and began its descent, though after a time halted by a gaping, ragged chasm whose narrowest point could not be much less than four feet across. Here, the stonework had fallen through, revealing incalculable inky depths beneath. I knew there were two more cellar levels in this titan edifice and trembled with fresh panic as I recalled the metal-clamped trap door on the lowest one. There could be no guards now, for what had lurked beneath had long since done its hideous work and sunk into its long decline. By the time of the post-human beetle race, it would be quite dead. And yet, As I thought of the native legends, I trembled anew. It cost me a terrible effort to vault the yawning chasm, since the littered floor prevented a running start, but madness drove me on. I chose a place close to the left-hand wall, where the rift was least wide and the landing spot reasonably clear of dangerous debris, and after one frantic moment reached the other side in safety. At last, gaining the lower level, I stumbled on past the archway of the Room of Machines, within which were fantastic ruins of metal, half-buried beneath fallen vaulting. Everything was where I knew it would be, and I climbed confidently over the heaps which barred the entrance of a vast transverse corridor. This, I realized, would take me under the city to the central archives. Endless ages seemed to unroll as I stumbled, leapt, and crawled along the debris cluttered corridor. Now and then I could make out carvings on the ages stained walls, some familiar, others seemingly added since the period of my dreams. Since this was a subterranean house connecting highway, there were no archways save when the route led through the lower levels of various buildings. At some of these intersections, I turned aside long enough to look down well-remembered corridors and into well-remembered rooms. Twice only did I find any radical changes from what I had dreamed of, and in one of these cases I could trace the sealed-up outlines of the archway I remembered. I shook violently and felt a curious surge of retarding weakness as I steered a hurried and reluctant course through the crypt of one of those great, windowless, ruined towers." whose alien basalt masonry misspoke a whispered in horrible origin. The primal vault was round and fully two hundred feet across, with nothing carved upon the dark-hued stonework. The floor was here free from anything save dust and sand, and I could see the apertures leading upward and downward. There were no stairs or inclines, Indeed, my dreams had pictured those elder towers as wholly untouched by the fabulous great race. Those who had built them had not needed stairs or inclines. In the dreams, the downward aperture had been tightly sealed and nervously guarded. Now, it lay open, black and yawning, and giving forth a current of cool, damp air, of what limitless caverns of eternal night might brood below. I would not permit myself to think. Later, clawing my way along a badly heaped section of the corridor, I reached a place where the roof had wholly caved in. The debris rose like a mountain, and I climbed up over it, passing through a vast, empty space where my torchlight could reveal neither walls nor vaulting. This, I reflected, must be the cellar of the house of the metal purveyors, fronting on the third square not far from the archives. What had happened to it, I could not conjecture. I found the corridor again beyond the mountain of detritus and stone, but after a short distance encountered a wholly choked place, where the fallen vaulting almost touched the perilously sagging ceiling, how I managed to wrench and tear aside enough blocks to afford a passage... And how I dared disturb the tightly packed fragments when the least shift of equilibrium might have brought down all the tons of superincumbent masonry to crush me to nothingness, I do not know. It was sheer madness that impelled and guided me. If indeed my whole underground adventure was not, as I hope, a hellish delusion or phase of dreaming, but I did make, or dream that I made, a passage that I could squirm through. As I wiggled over the mound of debris, my torch switched continuously on, thrust deeply in my mouth. I felt myself torn by the fantastic stalactites of the jagged floor above me. I was now close to the great underground archival structure which seemed to form my goal. Sliding and clambering down the farther side of the barrier and picking my way along the remaining stretch of corridor with hand-held, intermittently flashing torch... I came at last to a low, circular crypt with arches, still in a marvelous state of preservation, opening off on every side. The walls on such parts of them as lay within reach of my torchlight were densely hieroglyphed and chiseled with typical curvilinear symbols, some added since the period of my dreams. This I realized was my fated destination, and I turned at once through a familiar archway on my left. That I could find a clear passage up and down the incline to all the surviving levels, I had oddly little doubt. This vast earth-protected pile, housing the annals of all the solar system, had been built with supernal skill and strength to last as long as that system itself. Blocks of stupendous size, poised with mathematical genius and bound with cements of incredible toughness, had combined to form a mass as firm as the planet's rocky core. Here, after ages more prodigious than I could sanely grasp, its buried bulk stood in all its essential contours, the vast, dust-drifted floors scarce sprinkled with the litter elsewhere so dominant. The relatively easy walking from this point onward went curiously to my head, All the frantic eagerness hitherto frustrated by obstacles now took itself out in a kind of febrile speed and I literally raced along the low-roofed, monstrously well-remembered aisles beyond the archway. I was past being astonished by the familiarity of what I saw. On every hand, the great hieroglyphed metal shelf doors loomed monstrously, some yet in place, others sprung open, and still others bent and buckled under bygone geological stresses, not quite strong enough to shatter the titan masonry. Here and there, a dust-covered heap beneath a gaping, empty shelf seemed to indicate where cases had been shaken down by earth tremors. On occasional pillars were great symbols or letters proclaiming classes and subclasses of volumes. Once, I paused before an open vault where I saw some of the accustomed metal cases still in position amidst the omnipresent gritty dust. Reaching up, I dislodged one of the thinner specimens with some difficulty and rested it on the floor for inspection. It was titled in the prevailing curvilinear hieroglyphs, though something in the arrangement of the character seemed subtly unusual. The odd mechanism of the hooked fastener was perfectly well known to me, and I snapped up the still rustless and workable lid and drew out the book within. The latter, as expected, was some twenty by fifteen inches in area and two inches thick, the thin metal covers opening at the top. Its tough, cellulose pages seemed unaffected by the myriad cycles of time they had lived through, and I studied the queerly pigmented, brush-drawn letters of the text symbols, unlike either the usual curved hieroglyphs or any alphabet known to human scholarship, with a haunting, half-aroused memory. It came to me that this was the language used by a captive mind I had known slightly in my dreams, a mine from a large asteroid on which had survived such of the archaic life and lore of the primal planet whereof it formed a fragment. At the same time, I recalled that this level of the archives was devoted to volumes dealing with the non-terrestrial planets. As I ceased poring over this incredible document, I saw that the light of my torch was beginning to fail, hence quickly inserted the extra battery I always had with me. Then, armed with the stronger radiance... I resumed my feverish racing through unending tangles of aisles and corridors, recognizing now and then some familiar shelf and vaguely annoyed by the acoustic conditions which made my footfalls echo incongruously in these catacombs. The very prints of my shoes behind me in the millennially untrodden dust made me shudder. Never before, if my mad dreams held anything of truth, had human feet pressed upon those immemorial pavements... Of the particular goal of my insane racing, my conscious mind held no hint. There was, however, some force of evil potency pulling at my dazed will and buried recollection, so that I vaguely felt I was not running at random. I came to a downward incline and followed it to the profounder depths. Floors flashed by me as I raced, but I did not pause to explore them. In my whirling brain there had begun to beat a certain rhythm which set my right hand twitching in unison. I wanted to unlock something and felt that I knew all the intricate twists and pressures needed to do it. It would be like a modern safe with a combination lock. Dream or not, I had once known and still knew. How any dream or scrap of unconsciously absorbed legend could have taught me a detail so minute so intricate and so complex. I did not attempt to explain to myself. I was beyond all coherent thought, for it was not this whole experience, this shocking familiarity with a set of unknown ruins, and this monstrously exact identity of everything before me with what only dreams and scraps of myth could have suggested, a horror beyond all reason? Probably it was my basic conviction then, as it is now, during my saner moments, that I was not awake at all, and that the entire buried city was a fragment of a febrile hallucination. Eventually, I reached the lowest level and struck off to the right of the incline. For some shadowy reason, I tried to soften my steps, even though I lost speed thereby. There was a space I was afraid to cross on this last, deeply buried floor... As I drew near it, I recalled what thing in that space I feared. It was merely one of the metal-barred and closely guarded trapdoors. There would be no guards now, and on that account I trembled and tiptoed as I had done in passing to the black basalt vault where a similar trapdoor had yawned. I felt a current of cool, damp air as I had felt there and wished that my course led in another direction. Why I had to take the particular course I was taking, I did not know. When I came to the space, I saw that the trapdoor yawned widely open. Ahead, the shelves began again, and I glimpsed on the floor before one of them a heap very thinly covered with dust where a number of cases had recently fallen. At the same moment, a fresh wave of panic clutched me, Though no, for some time I could not discover why. Heaps of falling cases were not uncommon. For all through the aeons this lightless labyrinth had been racked by the heavings of earth. And it echoed at intervals of the deafening clatter of toppling objects. It was only when I was nearly across the space that I realized why I shook so violently. Not the heap. But something about the dust of the level floor was troubling me. In the light of my torch, it seemed as if that dust were not as even as it ought to be. There were places where it looked thinner, as if it had been disturbed not many months before. I could not be sure, for even the apparently thinner places were dusty enough, yet a certain suspicion of regularity in the fancied unevenness was highly disquieting. When I brought the torchlight close to one of the queer places, I did not like what I saw but the illusion of regularity became very great. It was as if there were regular lines of composite impressions, impressions that went in threes, each slightly over a foot square, and consistently of five nearly circular three-inch prints, one in advance of the other four. These possible lines of foot square impressions appeared to lead in two directions, as if something had gone somewhere and returned. They were, of course, very faint, and may have been illusions or accidents, but there was an element of dim, fumbling terror about the way I thought they ran, for at one end of them was the heap of cases which must have clattered down not long before, while at the other end was the ominous trapdoor with the cool, damp wind Yawning unguarded, down to an abyss, past imagination. Chapter 8 That my strange sense of compulsion was deep and overwhelming is shewn by its conquest of my fear. No rational motive could have drawn me on after that hideous suspicion of Prince and the creeping dream memories excited Yet, my right hand, even as it shook with fright, still twitched rhythmically in its eagerness to turn a lock it hoped to find. Before I knew it, I was past the heap of lately fallen cases and running on tiptoe through aisles of utterly unbroken dust toward a point which I seemed to know morbidly, horribly well. My mind was asking itself questions whose origin and relevancy I was only beginning to guess. Would the shelf be reachable by a human body? Could my human hand master the aeon-remembered motions of the lock? Would the lock be undamaged and workable? And what would I do? What dare I do with what? As I now commenced to realize, I both hoped and feared to find. Would it prove the awesome, brain-shattering truth of something past normal conception? Or show only that I was dreaming. The next I knew I had ceased my tiptoed racing and was standing still, staring at a row of maddeningly familiar hieroglyph shelves. They were in a state of almost perfect preservation, and only three of the doors in this vicinity had sprung open. My feelings toward these shelves cannot be described, so utter and insistent was the sense of old acquaintance. I was looking high up at a row near the top and wholly out of my reach and wondering how I could climb to best advantage. An open door four rows from the bottom would help, and the locks of the closed doors formed possible holds for hands and feet. I would grip the torch between my teeth, as I had in other places where both hands were needed. Above all, I must make no noise. How to get down what I wished to remove would be difficult but I could probably hook its movable fastener in my coat collar and carry it like a knapsack. Again, I wondered whether the lock would be undamaged, that I could repeat each familiar motion I had not the least doubt, but I hoped the thing would not scrape or creak, and that my hand could work it properly. Even as I thought these things, I had taken the torch in my mouth and begun to climb. The rejecting locks were poor supports, but... As I had expected, the open shelf helped greatly. I used both the swinging door and the edge of the aperture itself in my ascent and managed to avoid any loud creaking. Balanced on the upper edge of the door and leaning far to my right, I could just reach the lock I sought. My fingers, half numb from climbing, were very clumsy at first, but I soon saw that they were anatomically adequate and the memory rhythm was strong in them. Out of unknown gulfs of time, the intricate secret motions had somehow reached my brain correctly in every detail, for after less than five minutes of trying, there came a click, whose familiarity was all the more startling, because I had not consciously anticipated it. In another instant, the metal door was slowly swinging open with only the faintest grating sound. Dazedly, I looked over the row of grayish case-ends thus exposed and felt a tremendous surge of some wholly inexplicable emotion. Just within reach of my right hand was a case whose curving hieroglyphs made me shake with a pang infinitely more complex than one of mere fright. Still shaking, I managed to dislodge it amidst a shower of gritty flakes and ease it over toward myself without any violent noise. Like the other case I had handled, it was slightly more than 20 by 15 inches in size, with curved mathematical designs and low relief. In thickness, it just exceeded 3 inches. Crudely wedging it between myself and the surface I was climbing, I fumbled with the fastener and finally got the hook free. Lifting the cover, I shifted the heavy object to my back and let the hook catch hold of my collar. Hands now free, I awkwardly clambered down to the dusty floor and prepared to inspect my prize. Kneeling in the gritty dust, I swung the case around and rested it in front of me. My hand shook, and I dreaded to draw out the book within almost as much as I longed, and felt compelled to do so. It had very gradually become clear to me what I ought to find, and this realization nearly paralyzed my faculties. If the things were there, and if I were not dreaming, the implications would be quite beyond the power of the human spirit to bear. What tormented me most was my momentary inability to feel that my surroundings were a dream. The sense of reality was hideous, and again becomes so as I recall the scene. At length, I tremblingly pulled the book from its container and stared fascinatedly at the well-known hieroglyphs on the cover. It seemed to be in prime condition, and the curvilinear letters of the title held me in almost as hypnotized a state as if I could read them. Indeed, I cannot swear that I did not actually read them in some transient and terrible access of abnormal memory. I do not know how long it was before I dared to lift that thin metal cover... I temporized and made excuses to myself. I took the torch from my mouth and shut it off to save the battery. Then, in the dark, I collected my courage, finally lifting the cover without turning on the light. Last of all, I did indeed flash the torch upon the exposed page, stealing myself in advance to suppress any sound, no matter what I should find. I looked for an instant, then collapsed. Clenching my teeth, however, I kept silent. I sank wholly to the floor and put a hand to my forehead amidst the engulfing blackness. What I dreaded and expected... was there. Either I was dreaming, or time and space had become a mockery. I must be dreaming... But I would test the horror by carrying this thing back and showing it to my son if indeed it were a reality. My head swam frightfully, even though there were no visible objects in the unbroken gloom to swirl about me. Ideas and images of the starkest terror, excited by vistas which my glimpse had opened up, began to throng upon me and cloud my senses. I thought of those possible prints in the dust and trembled at the sound of my own breathing as I did so. Once again, I flashed on the light and looked at the page as a serpent's victim may look at the destroyer's eyes and fangs. Then, with clumsy fingers, in the dark, I closed the book, put it in its container, and snapped the lid and the curious hooked fastener. This was what I must carry back to the outer world if it truly existed, if the whole abyss truly existed, if I and the world itself truly existed. Just when I tottered to my feet and commenced my return, I cannot be certain. It comes to me oddly, as a measure of my sense of separation from the normal world, that I did not even once look at my watch during those hideous hours underground. Torch in hand, and with the ominous case under one arm, I eventually found myself tiptoeing in a kind of silent panic past the draft giving abyss and those lurking suggestions of prints. I lessened my precautions as I climbed up the endless inclines, but could not shake off a shadow of apprehension which I had not felt on the downward journey. I dreaded heaving to repass through the black basalt crypt that was older than the city itself where cold draughts welled up from unguarded depths. I thought of that which the great race had feared, and of what might still be lurking, be it ever so weak and dying. Down there, I thought of those five circle prints, and of what my dreams had told me of such prints, and of strange winds and whistling noises associated with them. And I thought of the tales of the modern blackfellows, where in the horror of great winds and nameless subterranean ruins was dwelt upon, I knew from a carven wall symbol the right floor to enter, and came at last after passing the other book I had examined to the great circular space with the branching archways. On my right, and at once recognizable, was the arch through which I had arrived. This I now entered conscious that the rest of my course would be harder because of the tumbled state of the masonry outside the archive building. My new metal-eased burden weighed upon me, and I found it harder and harder to be quiet as I stumbled among debris and fragments of every sort. Then I came to the ceiling-high mound of debris through which I had wrenched a scanty passage. My dread at wriggling through again was infinite, for my first passage had made some noise, and I now after seeing those possible prints. Dreaded sound above all things. The case, too, doubled the problem of traversing the narrow crevice. But I clambered up the barrier as best I could and pushed the case through the aperture ahead of me. Then, torch in mouth, I scrambled through myself, my back torn as before by stalactites. As I tried to grasp the case again, It fell some distance ahead of me, down the slope of the debris, making a disturbing clatter and arousing echoes which sent me into a cold perspiration. I lunged for it at once and regained it without further noise. But a moment afterward, the slipping of blocks under my feet raised a sudden and unprecedented din. The din was my undoing, for, falsely or not, I thought I heard it answered in a terrible way from spaces far behind me. I thought I heard a shrill, whistling sound, like nothing else on Earth, and beyond any adequate verbal description. If so, what followed has a grim irony, since, save for the panic of this thing, the second thing might never have happened. As it was, my frenzy was absolute and unrelieved. Taking my torch in my hand and clutching feebly at the case, I leapt and bounded wildly ahead with no idea in my brain beyond a mad desire to race out of these nightmare ruins to the waking world of desert and moonlight which lay so far above. I hardly knew it when I reached the mountain of debris which towered into the vast blackness beyond the caved-in roof and bruised and cut myself repeatedly in scrambling up its steep slope of jagged blocks and fragments. Then came the great disaster. Just as I blindly crossed the summit, unprepared for the sudden dip ahead, my feet slipped utterly and I found myself involved in a mangling avalanche of sliding masonry whose cannon-loud uproar split the black cavern air in a deafening series of earth-shaking reverberations. I have no recollection of emerging from this chaos, but a momentary fragment of consciousness shows me as plunging and tipping and scrambling along the corridor amidst the clangor, case and torch still with me. Then, just as I approached that primal basalt crypt I had so dreaded, utter madness came. For as the echoes of the avalanche died down, there became audible a repetition of that frightful alien whistling I thought I had heard before. This time, there was no doubt about it. And what was worse, it came from a point not behind, but ahead of me. Probably I shrieked aloud then. I have a dim picture of myself as flying through the hellish basalt vault of the Elder Things and hearing that damnable alien sound piping up from the open, unguarded door of limitless nether blacknesses. There was a wind, too. Not nearly a cool, damp draft, but a violent, purposeful blast belching savagely and frigidly from that abominable gulf whence the obscene whistling came. There were memories of leaping and lurching over obstacles of every sort with that torrent of wind and shrieking sound growing moment by moment, and seeming to curl and twist purposely around me as it struck out wickedly from the spaces behind and beneath. Though in my rear that wind had the odd effect of hindering instead of aiding my progress, as if it acted like a noose or lasso thrown around me, heedless of the noise I made I clattered over a great barrier of blocks and was again in the structure that led to the surface, I recall glimpsing the archway to the room of machines and almost crying out as I saw the incline leading down to where one of those blasphemous trapdoors must be yawning two levels below. But instead of crying out, I muttered over and over to myself that this was all a dream from which I must soon awake. Perhaps I was in camp. Perhaps I was at home in Arkham. As these hopes bolstered up my sanity, I began to mount the incline to the higher level. I knew, of course, that I had the four-foot cleft to recross, yet was too racked by other fears to realize the full horror until I came almost upon it. On my descent, the leap across had been easy, but could I clear the gap as readily when going uphill and hampered by fright, exhaustion, the weight of the metal case, and the anomalous backward tug of that demon wind? I thought of these things at the last moment, and thought also of the nameless entities which might be lurking in that black abyss below the chasm. My wavering torch was growing feeble, but I could tell by some obscure memory when I neared the cleft. The chill blasts of wind and the nauseous whistling shrieks behind me were for the moment like a merciful opiate, dulling my imagination to the horror of the yawning gulf ahead. And then I became aware of the added blasts and whistling in front of me, tides of abomination surging up to the cleft itself from depths unimagined and unimaginable. Now, indeed, the essence of pure nightmare was upon me. Sanity departed, and ignoring everything except the animal impulse of flight, I merely struggled and plunged upward over the incline's debris as if no gulf had existed. Then I saw the chasm's edge leapt madly with every ounce of strength I possessed and was instantly engulfed in a pandemonium vortex of loathsome sound and utter materially tangible blackness. This is the end of my experience, so far as I can recall. Any further impressions belong wholly to the domain of Phantasmagoria delirium, dream Madness and memory merged wildly together in a series of fantastic fragmentary delusions which can have no relation to anything real. There was a hideous fall through incalculable leagues of viscous, sentient darkness and a babble of noises utterly alien to all that we know of the Earth and its organic life. Dormant, rudimentary senses seemed to start into vitality within me telling of pits and voids peopled by floating horrors and leading to sunless crags and oceans and teeming cities of windowless basalt towers upon which no light ever shone. Secrets of the primal planet and its immemorial aeons flashed through my brain without the aid of sight or sound and there were known to me things which not even the wildest of my former dreams had ever suggested. And all the while, cold fingers of damp vapor clutched and picked at me. And that eldritch, damnable whistling shrieked fiendishly above all the alternations of babble and silence in the whirlpools of darkness around. Afterward, there were visions of the cyclopean city of my dreams. Not in ruins, but just as I had dreamed of it. I was in my carnical, non-human body again and mingled with crowds of the great race and the captive minds who carried books up and down the lofty corridors and vast inclines. Then, superimposed upon these pictures, were frightful, momentary flashes of a non-vistial consciousness involving desperate struggles, a writhing free from clutching tentacles of whistling wind an insane, bat-like flight through half-solid air, a feverish burrowing through the cyclone-whipped dark, and a wild stumbling and scrambling over fallen masonry. Once, there was a curious, intrusive flash of half-sight, a faint, diffuse suspicion of bluish radiance far overhead. Then, there came a dream of wind, pursued climbing and crawling, of wriggling into a blaze of sardonic moonlight... through a jumble of debris which slid and collapsed after me amidst a morbid hurricane. It was the evil, monotonous beating of that maddening moonlight... which at last told me of the return... of what I had once known as the objective waking world. I was clawing prone to the sands of the Australian desert and around me shrieked such a tumult of wind as I had never before known on our planet's surface. My clothing was in rags, and my whole body was a mass of bruises and scratches. Full consciousness returned very slowly, and at no time could I tell just where delirious dream left off, and true memory began. There it seemed to be a mound of titan blocks, an abyss beneath it, a monstrous revelation from the past, and a nightmare horror at the end. But how much of it was real? My flashlight was gone, and likewise any metal case I may have discovered. Had there been such a case, or any abyss, or any mound? Raising my head, I looked behind me, and saw only the sterile, undulant sands of the desert. The demon wind died down and the bloated, fungoid moon sank reddeningly in the west. I lurched to my feet and began to stagger southwestward toward the camp. What in truth had happened to me? Had I merely collapsed in the desert and dragged a dream-wracked body over miles of sand and buried blocks? If not, how could I bear to live any longer? For in this new doubt, All my faith in the myth-born unreality of my visions dissolved once more into the hellish, older doubting. If that abyss was real, then the great race was real, when its blasphemous reachings and seizures in the cosmos-wide vortex of time were no myths or nightmares, but a terrible, soul-shattering actuality. Had I, in full hideous fact been drawn back to a pre-human world of a hundred and fifty million years ago in those dark, baffling days of amnesia? Had my present body been the vehicle of a frightful alien consciousness from Paleogean gulfs of time? Had I, as the captive mind of those shambling horrors, indeed known that a cursed city of stone in its primordial heyday and wriggled down those familiar corridors in the loathsome shape of my captor, with those tormenting dreams of more than twenty years the offspring of stark, monstrous memories. Had I once veritably talked with the minds from reachless corners of time and space, learned the universe's secrets, past and to come, and written the annals of my own world for the metal cases of those titan archives, And were those others, those shocking elder things of the mad winds and demon pipings, in truth a lingering lurking menace, waiting and slowly weakening in the black abyss while varied shapes of life drag out their multi-millennial courses on the planet's age-wracked surface? I do not know. If that abyss and what I held were real, there is no hope. Then, all too truly, there lies upon this world of man a mocking and incredible shadow out of time. But, mercifully, there is no proof that these things are other than fresh phases of my myth-born dreams. I did not bring back the metal case that would have been a proof, and so far those subterranean corridors have not been found. If the laws of the universe are kind, they will never be found. But I must tell my son what I saw or thought I saw and let him use his judgment as a psychologist engaging the reality of my experience and communicating this account to others. I have said that the awful truth behind my tortured years of dreaming hinges absolutely upon the actuality of... Of what I thought I saw in those Cyclopean buried ruins. It has been hard for me, literally, to set down that crucial revelation. Though no reader can have failed to guess it. Of course, it lay in that book within the metal case. The case which I pried of its lair amidst the dust of a million centuries. No eye had seen... No hand had touched that book since the advent of man to this planet. And yet, when I flashed my torch upon it in that frightful abyss, I saw that the queerly pigmented letters on the brittle, aeon-brown cellulose pages were not indeed any nameless hieroglyphs of Earth's youth. They were, instead, the letters of our familiar alphabet spelling out the words of the English language in my own handwriting. You've been listening to The Shadow Out of Time, by H.P. Lovecraft. If you happen to have missed part one, I applaud you for sticking with it. No, I will refer you to last week's episode. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Horror Hill. Don't forget to tune in again next week, when I yet again regale you with a handful of tales to terrify, plumb from the most depraved depths of the human imagination. Tonight's story was written by and brought to you courtesy of Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Howard Phillips Lovecraft is a proud citizen of Providence, Rhode Island, where he lives with his 20 cats and syphilitic father. When he's not redefining the horror genre or being kind of a racist, he enjoys stargazing and chowing down on lobster rolls. If you happen to see him on the street, then the eldritch abominations invading your dreams have probably driven you mad. You should still say hello, though. Ia Ia Cthulhu motherfuckers. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, Please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you help support this show. And that means a lot to me. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another dance with darkness. I bid you goodnight. Sleep tight, listener. And whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. (laughs) The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. (laughs) Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Felipe Ojeda, Luke Hodgkinson, and Jesse Cornett. Final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshak. The program's artwork by yours truly, Jason Hill. Logo by Craig Groshak. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for Chilling Tales for Dark Nights as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing, and leave a kind word. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you.